the most common definition is something like bullying is the act of repeatedly and intentionally causing physical and or emotional harm to another person with less power. And I think a key aspect of this is it is a form of victimization. Too often, I think we treat this as a rite of passage. Um, and, and people, you know, I think they say, oh, yes, bullying is bad. But when it happens and people raise a hand, people often think, oh, that person is being too sensitive, um, indulgent. Uh, you know, they just need to toughen up. So I think we have a mismatch between our understanding that bullying is bad and how we respond to it. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. The voice you heard in the intro is Kayla Taylor. Kayla is the author of the brand new book, Canaries Among Us, a mother's quest to honor her child's individuality and a culture determined to negate it. Before we get into today's episode, here's a one minute word from our sponsor, Prep Dish. For many years, PrepDish has been sponsoring the Simple Families podcast, and for as many years, PrepDish has been making a positive difference in my life. It's hard to imagine the days before PrepDish when my mental load for meal planning and prepping food for our family was so heavy. I'm thankful that now every week in my inbox, I get a PDF that outlines what I'm going to be cooking for the week. It comes in three parts, a grocery list, a prep day list, and a dish day list. I order the groceries, and then I find a time to team up with my husband where we do the prep day together. This helps things run so much more smoothly when it comes to getting the food on the table during the after-school hustle, which, as most of you know, is the most chaotic time of the day. Okay, maybe second to bedtime or getting kids off to school. Okay, it's one of the most chaotic times of the day. If you want to try it out, go to preptish.com forward slash families. You'll get two weeks free. Go to preptish.com forward slash families and you'll get two weeks free. Back to our episode for today. Kayla is a first time author, something she never intended to be. But when her family's life was turned upside down, when her daughter was the target of bullying, she threw herself into the research to better understand and support her child and many others. Canaries Among Us is a memoir slash expose that looks at the ways that we mistreat unique children and helps us to consider an alternative. How do we support and celebrate their differences? As adults, it starts with us. How can we create more inclusive environments to prevent bullying? And when it does happen, how can we recognize it and address it properly? I want to thank Kayla for her time and all of her work to support bullying prevention efforts and also recognize that October is National Bullying Prevention Month with the day that this episode launches, Wednesday, October 12th, being National Stop Bullying Day here in the U.S. Thanks for tuning in. Here's my chat with Kayla. Hi, Kayla. How are you? I'm well, Danae. Thank you for having me today. 
It's great to have you. I'm glad to talk with you. I finished your book and I really enjoyed it. I wanted to hear first, just tell us a little bit about who you are. All right. So I actually have a background in business and strategy and finance. I have no background in writing. I never intended to be a writer. But then I had this experience, uh, my family had an experience that really rocked our world. Um, that dealt with a lot of different issues, which I'm sure we'll dive into, you know, relating to learning differences and bullying and anxiety. And they were conflating and intertwined and it was all very confusing and overwhelming. So I started journaling to work through, you know, my thoughts and my feelings and my understandings on all those issues. So really initially my writing was just for me. I was bleeding my heart onto paper and I was simultaneously doing a lot of research to figure out how to support my kids. So I guess I was taking notes on um, research findings. And then after a while, after several years, when I was able to get my family to better footing, I looked around, I saw so many other families were dealing with these same issues. When I was going through it, I, I, it was very isolating and I thought I was all alone. But then when I was able to peek my head above ground and look around, I saw that so many families are dealing with all these issues and they all think they're alone, but they're all right next to each other. So with a little encouragement from some friends, I considered uh, morphing my journal into a book with the hopes that it might help these other families feel less alone. And also I tried to, you know, integrate the research findings I found to hopefully empower them to advocate and support their own children. Oh, I love that. And you have three kids, right? So I have, um, as I mentioned in the author's note, uh, to protect the privacy and identities of mostly the children in my life, but really everybody, I've made minor alterations um, some alterations to protect the identities of certain people, actually of most people, but the underlying story, the underlying feelings, the underlying emotions I went through and my family went to are all very authentic and very real. Okay. And so Kayla Taylor is a pseudonym. Yes, it is. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that decision to use that? Yes. You know, it's an unusual decision and I was encouraged not to do it. I think there's a belief that if you don't um, have your name on something, then it's not real. But then I started asking around. When I was going through all this, I really, really was looking for a story written by a parent so that I could feel less alone. And it didn't exist as far as I could find. And I, and I really looked hard. And I slowly started talking to parents. And I heard many of them say things like, you know, I thought of writing a book and I thought of um, creating a blog, but I just didn't feel like I had the right to tell my kid's story. And my kids have a right to, you know, define their own identity as we grow up. And I just don't feel like I have a right to, to out them, especially with something so vulnerable where they're already being teased and degraded anyway. And so I did a lot of thinking because I, again, I saw so many families around me suffering and I wanted to lend a hand and tell a story in a way that I felt nobody had done for me. Um, and the only way I could find to do that, to honor my kids' privacy and identity and autonomy was to write my story um, under a pseudonym um, to protect them. You know, if they ever decide and if they ever come to me and they, they actually wanted me to write this book, but that was one of the, the caveats that they insisted upon. They, they really wanted to help others and get the story out there. 
but they wanted to protect their own um, privacy, which, you know, I, I felt the need to respect. And, and as a little bit of addendum, um, when I realized that their wish was wholly integrated with some of the research I had done, and that I think is not generally understood more broadly, I felt very compelled to honor their wishes. And that is that um, when people are injured and when they're victimized and mistreated, um, right now our process generally doesn't respect their autonomy or their wishes. So for example, if a woman is violated on a campus, she loses control of her story and of her life. You know, reporters come in, um, the legal system comes in, the um, educational institution where this happened might try and, you know, uh, mount a PR offensive just to make sure everybody thinks they look okay. And very few people are centering the person who was most injured. And I've learned that that's really one of the most important things to do. And often, especially when people are healing, uh, privacy is a key part of that. And so when I understood that, um, I felt like I really had no choice um, but to, to honor that for my children, really everybody else involved in the story. Um, but again, I, I, I really felt compelled to get the story out there to help other families because these issues are so stigmatized and nobody's talking about them. And this is the only way I could find to lend a hand and protect children. Yeah. It was probably also therapeutic, I imagine, to write the book. It was highly cathartic. <laughs> um, you know, again, I said I was journaling in the beginning and I felt with all these issues that I was dealing with, you know, it was learning differences and anxiety and bullying. And then I realized underpinning that was bias and there was victimization. And when I tried to speak up, there was isolation and I was really also in search of compassion and ways to repair the situation and justice. And there was this morass of feelings and thoughts in my head. And the more I wrote, the more they kind of smoothed out into um, parallel lines is how I think about it. You know, this big knot in my head. And, all, and with time through the writing, I was able to understand more um, and, and, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, I really felt for a lot of times like I was bleeding onto paper, um, just getting the story out of me, um, which was which was very healing. Yeah. I, I recommend it to anybody um, who's going through a difficult situation, especially if people are negating what you're saying and denying your truth. You know, if nobody else will believe you, if you can write it down and put it on concrete paper that's physical and you right. can see it, that there's something very real and solidifying about that. Yeah. Bullying is not a topic that we have covered yet on the podcast. And really? I was hoping, yeah, not yet, which is why I'm glad to have you today. Um, so I'm hoping that you could give me a definition. How do we differentiate normal child behavior from bullying? Right. So this is one of the first things I studied. And there are different opinions on the definition. But the more I researched, the more I realized that the scholars and the experts honed in on a few key issues. And so I think if you combined um, the most common definition is something like bullying is the act of repeatedly and intentionally causing physical and or emotional harm to another person with less power. And I think a key aspect of this is it is a form of victimization. Too often, I think we treat this as a rite of passage um, 
and in people, you know, I think they say, oh, yes, bullying is bad. But when it happens and people raise a hand, people often think, oh, that person is being too sensitive, um, indulgent. Uh, you know, they just need to toughen up. So I think we have a mismatch between our understanding that bullying is bad and how we respond to it in everyday life. And I'm glad you asked the definition because that really helps define when we should take action. So for example, if there's you know an action on a playground, one kid runs by and hits another, and it's a one-time action uh, that doesn't happen again, that would not qualify as bullying. It also wouldn't be intentional necessarily. Um, I think it's also, again, with the definition, um, people are very clear that it is not just physical hitting on a playground, but emotional abuse very much counts as well. And maybe one of the key aspects that I hadn't really considered before is this imbalance of power. And that, and that can surface in many ways, but that is a key aspect of bullying. Yeah. And I asked that question because I do feel like the word is being used a lot. And sometimes mm-hmm. I wonder if we're overusing it and diluting it. Um, my son has recently on a few occasions told said that I'm bullying him when I'm like telling him, <laughs> telling him to do something he doesn't want to do. And I have to kind of go back to what that really means. And I just, and yes. I wonder, you know, what the conversation has been like with him and when he's been hearing this at school and how it's defined to them, yeah. because it, I think it is important because if we just say everything is bullying, then when we're really dealing with some real bullying, like your daughter faced, then it doesn't, it, we need to differentiate somehow. If that makes sense. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think when language is overused, it's diluted. I think, I think there is both that problem. And as I mentioned, the problem that when it surfaces, maybe because it's been diluted, um, and also probably for a host of other reasons. You know, people don't like to believe bad things happen under their purview. People worry that it taints their image. Um, So it is both diluted, but also when it happens, I find that people regularly don't take it seriously. Yeah. So targeted and repeated, those are two words that I'm hearing as far as kind of quantifying um, or differentiating bullying versus mean-spirited behavior. Right. And there's also this concept of intentionality, which can be difficult to discern um, because it's hard to get in someone else's head, right? One of the the PhDs that I was reading by actually several said, you know, if you tell, we're talking pediatrics, so I'll, I'll say a child in this case, that what you did is hurtful and it hurts people in this ways and we can't do, you can't, do that anymore. Um, so if they've been told and then they do it again, unless they're cognitively impaired, then that would count as intentionality. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, one thing that I liked in the book was that you didn't focus on the kids. You focused on trying to change the system. And I wanted to ask, was that hard to focus on the bigger picture instead of on the kids who are really inflicting the pain? Uh, that is such a good question. Yes, it was hard. But actually, I, I, not for very long did I ever feel any real anger or re- aggression towards any of the children. Where I got really upset and where it was really hard to take it to a higher level was to not demonstrate too much anger towards the adults who were complicit with the bullying. 
Um, unfortunately, anger is not generally well received in our society, but this was an anger inducing situation. So I really had to work through my anger to, to a different level to understand how to find a solution. And I did that by thinking more about the system. And, you know, I also reminded myself that I think people who know better do better. And so my hope is that the people, including the adults who behaved poorly, did so out of a lack of awareness and understanding on all these issues than really, you know, any sort of evil intention. Yeah. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. Um, I I enjoyed your mama bear chapter where you were talking about, um, you shared the story about how one of your friends had approached, I think you said it was one of your friends, had approached a bully on the playground and said something along the lines of, if you do it again, I'm going to rip your arm off and make you eat it. Yes. And that story made me laugh out loud because it was so awkward. And also, I mean, I felt like I could... I could feel her pain. Yes, you know that that uh, that a woman, a mother would would feel so protective of her child that she would make a threat like that. Um, the, the, the thing is, though, it was sad. It was actually effective. Yeah, but yeah. yes, it wasn't. It wasn't a path I wanted to pursue. Right, right. But then you do tell a story of how you did lose it on mm-hmm. one of the fathers, and how that. That was therapeutic for everyone, it sounds like, in the end. At the time, it did not feel at all therapeutic. I felt okay. like I had lost control. Um, I had lost any sense of decorum. My child had been hurt again. And I don't know how much we should t- tell about this for for your listeners. Yeah. But there had been many years of trying to work um, constructively with various parties and after many years of that, um, my child tried to speak directly with the father, with the father of one of the children, who had very much mistreated them, and um, the father then unleashed on my child, and and in this case, I lost it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as I say in the book, I wasn't proud of it, but ultimately, I it seems that. Um, it was therapeutic, at least for my child, to see a parent defending them so publicly and vehemently, vehemently. And it made me consider that um, maybe I should have done something of the type earlier. Maybe not yelling on the middle of a playground, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think along the way I should have been clear with my child. I think I was trying to support my child encourage them to solve their own problems. And, you know, I was, of course, trying to do things behind the scenes, but I didn't want my child to feel like I was disempowering them. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the end, I think I went too far where I didn't make it quite clear enough all the work I was doing to support them. Mm. Yeah, that maybe maybe your child didn't actually know how hard you were working around the clock, how many things you were focused on. and, and, And as a result, you felt like maybe she felt less supported than she actually was. Right, right. So that visual display in the middle of a playground, I think, um, changed things for her. And she felt very supportive. And it actually ended up changing her demeanor going forward. 
That's that's so interesting. And I, I feel like I throughout the book, I just listened to you work so hard to stay calm. <laughs> and it's very human though, right? I think that that tendency to want to protect your kid is it's it's a real visceral reaction that is is difficult to control. And you worked really hard and it was and in the end you didn't really get the outcome that you were hoping for, which was an anti-bullying program in the school. Right. I th- you know, I wanted to be honest about what happens. I would love to have ended this story with a lot of rainbows with unicorns jumping over them, but I know families are really in the trenches and I wanted to be honest about how things end sometimes. But hopefully, um, I think I, I do, I really try and I, th- I think it, it's justified. I, I end with some hope. Um, there are things we can do to support our children. There are different outlooks we can have um, and we can get kids to a better place. Unfortunately, you know, not all kids have school options. There's one school in their town. Um, and so I didn't want to just say, oh, all you have to do is switch schools and everything's okay, um, because that's really not an option for many, many, many families. Um, but hopefully I provided, you know, some insights that I gained from the experts and some tools that, you know, can ultimately help kids get to a better place and families, therefore. Right. Yeah. And what would you say the consequences are of addressing issues like this in a school inadequately? Well, they can be quite large. So um, bullying has lifelong effects. So in the classroom itself, you know, threatening behavior, uh, you're a PhD and I'm sure you've studied neurology and, and you know that it activates the amygdala, which is our stress response, the fight or flight or freeze response. And so when kids feel threatened, um, they their brain literally, you know, fights or flights or freezes. It shuts down and they can't learn. And so there are long term impacts on, on their learning. Kids who are bullied um, face social isolation, low self-esteem, um, academic impairment, stress-related ailments like headaches, stomachs, and problems sleeping, and then therefore mental health issues such as anxiety and depression. Um, You know, it goes on to substance abuse, delinquency, and and even crime later. And there are some studies that are showing that, you know, the chronic stress of bullying, these studies are underway now, but they're consistent with other findings that the the chronic stress of bullying can increase inflammation, um, which affects long-term health risks like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Um, so the, the effects are, are long term <laughs> for your whole life. Yeah. So when we don't address these now, they can very much impact the future of our kids and our communities. Yeah. And one of the things that I think struck me that I hadn't thought about before was the spiral effect of how it impacts the child and then it also impacts the family. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So... You know, in our case, we had one child who was bullied and the amount of attention I had to put on helping that child who then dealt with many of these issues I was talking about, including very serious anxiety, debilitating anxiety. And when you have one child who can't go to sleep, who won't eat, who won't leave the house, that means all your attention is going towards that child and very much affects the other children. And, you know, it's hard to leave the house to go to work. It's hard to have, um, you know, the peace of mind to really manage anything else in your life. And in our case, you know, when good, good friends, some 
were supportive, but generally the friends that were right next to me in the trenches at this school um, did not support us. And to realize your own friends won't help your kids or help you um, can be very demoralizing and debilitating. And it, it ended up putting me in a pretty bad state as well. You know, I, I've had, I've, I've heard people say, and actually one is a good friend that um, they put their kids on, um, on medication to deal with anxiety and stress and things like this. And then they put themselves, it, these affect the whole system. And then of course, if parents go to, to work upset and then they're rude to a colleague that then affects the whole work situation. So there's right. a spiral effect that, um, can very much spin out of control if, if we don't nip it in the bud. Yeah. And then your child who was bullied may start bullying other kids as a result. Yes. We found that in our own household uh, where um, the child who was bullied started picking on um, a younger child. And to be honest, we're still dealing with that a little bit. Um, The memory of not feeling safe in your own home um, really can be debilitating for a child. We're going to pause for a two-minute word from today's sponsors. The first sponsor is Cozy Earth. Thanks to Cozy Earth, I've never had a better night's sleep in my life. My partner and I adore our comfy sheets. And now I'm pretty excited that they're making the comfiest loungewear of my life. Cozy Earth has developed and crafted high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth. Their loungewear is crafted from the same breathable and luxurious material as their bedding. And while it offers optimal comfort, it also has a flattering, elegant fit. If the pandemic has taught us nothing, it's the importance of good loungewear and being comfortable at home. Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's favorite list for four years in a row. They have a 10-year warranty on all of their products. Tank tops, t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, scrunchies, and even the sheets. Cozy Earth has provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today. You can get 35% off site-wide when you use the code SIMPLE. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code SIMPLE for 35% off site-wide. Our second sponsor for today is Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You can be sure that there's a fantastic person out there who's going to help you improve your business. The trick is just finding them. What I love about Indeed is it's simple. You don't have to make your candidates jump through hoops. Indeed's virtual interview tool means there's nothing to download. Just click and talk. With these virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. So visit indeed.com families to start hiring now. Go to indeed.com slash families, indeed.com slash families. Terms and conditions apply. Cost for application pricing is not available for everyone. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Thanks so much for supporting our sponsors. They keep this show in business. Back to my chat with Kayla. You had told a story of um, taking your daughter to camp and having a negative experience and then um after that experience, you had said, I, I'm going to read a quote. You said, I, I, turned my, I turned my back and promised myself to never deliver my child into misguided hands like these again. Never. 
So when I was reading that, I feel that so deeply. Um, but I also feel so deeply for the people who don't have that choice. Yes. Who have to drop their kids off into misguided hands knowingly. Right. And the privilege that um, one has to make that choice, whether or not they're going to drop the kid off at camp and go to work or not. Um, is that something that you have had to grapple with? Constantly. I, and I think I mentioned it several times in the book. So there definitely was a huge amount of guilt. Um, a, that I didn't act quickly enough for my own child, but then B, that I did have options. Way too many children don't. You know, I think I mentioned several times, what do single parents do in this situation? You know, even my ability to drop my child off at school and look the teacher in the eye and remind them that, you know, just by that look that we have an issue here um, was huge. And to be able to pick up my child after school and get, you know, the immediate feedback on what was happening, um, you know, it must feel to several parents that they are just leaving their child in a lion's den and, there's very little they can do about it. As I said, there was probably one school in the district and they have to work several hours a day or they'll lose their job. Um, I, I, my heart aches and bleeds for families who don't have options, which is why I think we really, really, really need to start taking the issue of bullying seriously in school. I know there are tons and tons of programs in most schools have posters on their walls that talk about bullying in their kind communities and social emotional learning but the everyday experiences of several kids is nowhere close to that. And the unfortunate yeah. thing is bullying, like I said, usually has a power differential. So it's probably happening to just one. I mean, it could very well be happening to just one kid in each class. So let's say if it's a class of 25 kids, the kid at the lowest rung is the one who's going to be targeted. So 24 families will tell you everything's okay. What's that one person complaining about? But really, if we're going to have a kind, compassionate community, we care most and we are most vigilant about protecting the most vulnerable. And so even just one voice should be enough. And, and that, uh, in my experience, is not happening now. And I, I would like to believe that if, if we as a community can care for that child, then parents can feel more safer leaving their children to go to work each day and doing the things they need to do. Right, right. Yeah, which is why I think books like yours and stories like your families are so important to push for more effective bullying programs. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, things like hanging up these signs on the walls in schools? What is doing lip service to the concept of bullying versus actually effectively dealing with it? Right. I think things that do lip service are, are short-term programs, posters on the wall, things that maybe are one-day training classes or that train kids in homeroom but don't really look into the specialist class, like like uh, the music class, if, if your school happens to have that. Don't look on the playground. A good program is all-encompassing, you know, all teachers, all students, all parents. A good program is authentically modeled on top. Culture is huge in terms of uh, combating bullying. And it, it really needs to happen at all levels. Um, you know, kindness from on top, the way I think a principal um, treats the teachers, for example, um, will have a huge effect on the well-being of those teachers and then how they, how they present in the classroom. The list of things that are very helpful in school include the authentically kind culture, which is 
Uh, very important because the biggest deterrence to bullying is uh, the bystander. So if a bystander stands up for a child that is being bullied, that has one of the largest um, impacts of, of all. So, mm-hmm. you know, cultures that celebrate the whistleblower versus what often com- uh, commonly happens now, whistleblowers are often treated like traitors. Um, and it's, you know, you can have a poster on a wall, but if you don't really have transparent and clear policies and expectations and procedures for both preventing and addressing bullying, it, it's really just lip service. Um, I have found one of the, the best things to do, uh, the research shows, in terms of prevention is to have reporting systems, especially anonymous reporting systems, um, because if people have the opportunity to share what is happening anonymously, they can be more candid and you can often um, prevent a situation from even developing in the first place. Yeah. Um, I think also, you know, these social emotional programs are also great in terms of building social skills for kids. But, you know, if, if they're not expected, if no one's watching on the playground to, to, to reinforce what they're learning in the classroom, it, it, it doesn't feel authentic. Yeah, I think we're coming off this critical time of the pandemic where there has been a huge push for integrating social and emotional programs into schools. Mm -hmm. And I hope that those are being integrated effectively. Um, I think in some cases they, they are, probably not all cases. But one thing that I feel like would be helpful too is that if teachers, and I know a lot of teachers do have a a good understanding of child development, but I don't think that all education programs really teach new teachers about the developing child, what that looks like, and how to support the whole child. And instead, some teachers are really focusing primarily on academics and seeing that as their role. And it's, it's impossible to really separate the two. I think that's true. I I think, you know, teachers are some of the most important people in all of our communities. And when we don't provide them with the information and resources they need, um, we're really failing them. So everything we can do to help teachers understand child development, um, I think would be hugely impactful. Yes. And I love that you quoted from is it the orchid and the dandelion child? I don't think that's the title. I love that book. Um, I'm trying to get W. Is it T. W. Boyce? I'm right. blanking on his name. The author. I'm trying to get him as a podcast guest this um, this year because I do. I love that book so much. So for anyone that's not familiar with that book and that concept, which you reference in the book as well, um, right. he is he's a, a medical researcher who looks at highly sensitive kids and has determined 20 to 30% of the population is more impacted by their environment. And Mm -hmm. that includes both aversive environments and supportive environments. And I think this is a really important thing for teachers to understand too, is that teachers have to understand the orchids, the highly sensitive kids. And it sounds like you have at least one orchid in your family. Right. To be honest, I wonder if I'm an orchid myself. Right. I think there's a genetic nature to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think people who are interested in this topic, there's also another great book called The Highly Sensitive Child by Elaine Aaron. Um, There are, you know, several, uh, there are are several books that they all come, you know, talk about the value of high sensitivity. And unfortunately, it's often demeaned and dismissed as being fragile and less capable. 
one of the best findings I found referred to something called vantage um, sensitivity. And that is, you know, to go back to your orchid um, and dandelion analogy, you know, people tend to think of dandelions as sturdier and therefore better. And they do perform better in arid environments or, and if this is a child, the analogy would be, you know, a difficult home environment or difficult, difficult school environment. But the orchid, if given um, the supports one a sensitive child needs, can actually, in fact, potentially, and not that dandelions don't matter, everyone matters, but they can truly outshine and thrive in a way that maybe the dandelions can't. And as I thought about this, you know, I know, and I mentioned this in the book, um, teachers are so impactful. And I, I know a lot of teachers go into the profession of hoping that they'll change the, change the trajectory of children who, you know, might otherwise really be an awful place um, to help that child know that one person does know and one believe and really impact the outcome, the future of that child. And, when, you know, when you pair that hope with the research, it seems that maybe um, the most likely candidates for this trajectory change would be the orchids, the canaries of the world, those that are highly sensitive to their environment. And when we say highly sensitive, we're not just meaning, you know, fragile in composure, but potentially they notice smells more, sights more. As research, fMRI um, research shows that, imaging shows that they process things deeper in the brain than, um, than most other people. So there's some really key, wonderful aspects to these children. And if we can help them feel safe and nurture them so that they can express the, these exceptional skill sets, they can really shine. And teachers are so well poised to do this. Yes, yes. And as a clinician, I work with a lot of highly sensitive kids. And it's always interesting to me that it is a difficult question to ask, to ask a parent, is your child, do you think your child is sensitive? Um, because it's often perceived as a negative thing. Like as if mm-hmm. I'm I'm asking them a, que- a question about a negative trait. And right. it wasn't until I asked that question a few times because I didn't have a negative association with the word sensitive, but I started to realize how many people do. Yes. Uh, you know, I think generally in society, I mean, I love that you don't, and maybe it's because you've studied all these issues and you're a clinician and maybe you're highly sensitive yourself. But I think we have a society that values um, strength, charisma, you know, this fortitude, um, and not necessarily sensitivity and understanding and compassion and um, ability to notice different things that other people aren't noticing. You know, often those people are treated like heretics. Like, what do you mean? that That's not happening over there. Um, you know, I make this analogy throughout to the canary. Yeah. Um, as I think probably most of your listeners know, canaries were brought into coal mines because they could sense toxin that miners couldn't. So when the canaries stopped singing, the miners knew they needed to leave the coal mine. And um, I think there are a lot of children out there who have special capacities to notice things other people aren't noticing. They're sensitive to various senses into even dynamics like injustice in the world and, and, and things that we want kids to notice. But when we don't value their sensitivity, when we in fact demean them for it, um, you know, they learn pretty quickly not to express it and to hide. And then we've lost a really, really 
I think, important part of our community and our society. Yeah, and I love that. I hadn't heard that story about the canaries um, in the coal mine, but it's a fascinating um, idea and that, that people did that. So I love that. Yeah, and I hope by the end of the book, you know, I talk about my child who's highly sensitive and, and basically notices people looking strangely at her and, you know, but I, but I hope I, by the end, I think I try and take the analogy to any kid who doesn't fit in a box. So for example, kids with learning differences, um, you know, people often assume kids with dyslexia, for example, that it's all problematic, but kids with dyslexia often have amazing traits associated with them. They notice things others don't notice. John Chambers, who uh, ran Cisco quite successfully for many years, talks in a book about how he uh, was able to connect dots that others couldn't see. I think you probably know more about this than I do, but their their visual awareness is is wider. They notice a broader, spe- and of course, not all dyslexics are the same, but on average, they're picking up more information, which can make it harder than to read letters on on a very specific page because they're noticing more perhaps um but if we lean into their strengths and notice what they are doing there's some pretty fabulous things so for me the canary ends up being really any child who has a skill set but who's dismissed um for not fitting in a certain box of what's expected to be average or normal and i think of course that society that child suffers but we all then suffer because we don't get to benefit from, you know, the extraordinary song of the canary or, or their ability in this, you know, to, to notice toxins or anything else. Yeah. And I really think there's this top-down effect starting with the adults and the adults accepting these kids that are different than what they might expect. And, you know, that includes parents. You know, I think anyone who's parenting a child like this, that, if you ever want your child to love themselves as they are, then you need to love them as they are. And the teachers need to love them as they are. And I think that's sometimes easier said than done. Absolutely. I mean, I mentioned in the book um, how uh, my husband, after throwing a ball, admittedly maybe to a child who was a little too young to catch a ball repeatedly, but my husband and I actually both played a ton of sports And he looked at me and said, I think one of the hardest things about raising kids is not raising them in your own image. I mean, he assumed that this child would be catching baseballs out of the womb. Um, And of course, that wasn't happening. And, you know, I was fortunate to have that statement made to me very early in my journey um, so that I could start being aware of when I was putting my own expectations on kids. But, you know, I still do it constantly. You know, we unfortunately are in a society that has a lot of expectations yeah. about oh, of course. what your kid does after school, where that kid goes to college, what kind of job that kid has. And it takes, it's exhausting to fight that battle, to swim upstream and say, no, I'm, I'm just going to let my kid be the best version of their self possible. Um, it's, we know it's the right thing, but it is so hard because there's so much fighting us in that journey. Yeah. Have you heard of or read the book Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon? I have. I have. I um what did you think of the book? Um well I haven't finished it because it's a thousand pages. It's dense. <laughs> it's long. <laughs> but um I love one of the first page in the first chapter, the quote that he has that in um, parenthood, we don't actually engage in reproduction. We engage in production because mm-hmm. we're not reproducing ourselves. We are producing a brand new human 
who is wholly different from us. And that was so, that I'll always hold on to that quote. I love that. I love that quote. You know, I'll say I there's something I tried to do. I respect Andrew Solomon what he did. He brought he that book brings a lot of um, insights into a lot of ideas and I don't know if traits is the right word, but traits that are often regularly dismissed. So I love that he did that. But one thing I tried to do differently in his book, you know, he talks about far from the tree. So he takes various traits and he ta- he uh, exemplifies people at the far end of an extreme. And I try to do something different in my book. So I think kids now are often, you know, the, the kid who is dyslexic or ADHD is often treated like they're the only kid in the classroom and then they're the aberration. And I wanted to show instead of these, that these were extreme situations, that in fact, one in five kids in a classroom has learning differences. Arguably, we all do because no one learns yeah. the same. Um and that one in five statistic doesn't include things like sensory processing disorders, auditory processing disorders, dyspraxia, speech, hearing, physical challenges. And my understanding is that one in five statistic doesn't include mental health issues like anxiety, um, which can very much impact learning. And so my goal was to show that this none of this is far from the tree. These, you know, When you put all the statistics together, this is probably every family or every other family that is dealing with these issues. Um, We just don't know it because they're so highly stigmatized and we're all, as we were suggesting before, you know, it's hard not to bend to the little box that society wants to put us and these kids in. Um, But I think if we can truly honor the, our kids differences versus stuff them in the box um, and realize Maybe we're all far from the tree, right? But through the umbrella of what we're talking about, I'm hoping then maybe we'll have more compassion for these kids and also for ourselves. I mean, I think when I went through my own educational career, I did what was expected of me. And, you know, I, I did pretty well. But when I look back, I didn't take certain courses, for example, because I was worried I might get a B or C instead of an A, and I knew a GPA mattered, right? Yeah. And so I was less risk-taking, less daring, and I, I, I didn't honor myself as much as I wish I had. Yeah. And so I think if we can say we're not all far from the tree, we are all, <laughs> we all have something special and unique about us, and we, and if we foster that. Like for me, that's exciting. The stuffing in a box thing is just debilitating and oh, it's exhausting. But this uh, honoring and seeking out what makes, you know, what our special sauce is to me is thrilling. And yes. um, so that's the notion I tried to portray. Right. Absolutely. And teaching our kids to do the same with their peers and someday their own families. Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that because so much of this you know, if we want to teach our kids, we need to role model it ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, think of the number of times, and we've all done this, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that in, in our kids' presence, we refer to someone else as strange or weird or odd, yeah. right? They seem like simple words, but your kid has just taken in that anything that's a little bit of an outlier is not acceptable, And so they're going to use that information to judge their own peers and to stuff themselves in a box, right? Yeah. Um, So I think 
to the extent that we as parents, I, I know you look for how to simplify things. I think that's one of the, the, the simplest things we can do as parents is role model appreciating other people's differences of all kinds. Um, and then there's less judgment in our world. So our life's easier and happier. And it also sends this beautiful message to our, our children um, that, that hopefully might impact their own lives. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kayla. I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed hearing your story. Thank you, Danae, not just for this conversation, but for all that you are doing to support all children and families and um, to make life simpler and more enjoyable. It, it, the impact is huge. And I thank you. Thank you. As always, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Kayla. If you want to find the links to the things that we talked about today, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 326. You can find Kayla's book, Canaries Among Us, wherever books are sold. I appreciate your support of Simple Families. I'm glad you're here.